Thank you so much. Uh, you know, similarly, those pastor lunches, pretty soon uh, after that, my family started to go through a very difficult, prolonged season, and um, Drew was Jesus to me for many, many months. Um, and in fact, actually, the, the, what was beginning actually was about two years ago now, three years ago. Gosh, time flies. Um, it sort of ended up leading me to a place where I, I did need to choose to walk away from this church that I loved and I'd built and, and, and uh, do something else. Um, but to get to be here today is just a real gift. So, because um, I, love, I love this. I love getting to talk about God's love. I, um, I love being in new spaces with people. And So anyway, it's good to be here. My name is Matthew, uh, as Drew said, and um, I live over on the east side, um, but it's, uh, it's a gift to be in your house today. I've just been very touched by everything. It's incredible. It's a beautiful community. So we're going to jump in. I'm going to read Romans 8. And if you are um, a person who's been around the Bible for a bit, you're like, ah, Romans 8. That's like the Hall of Fame in the Bible. So, um, I mean, (laughs) Drew this morning said, it sounds like it's going to be a a banging message. And it's like, well, it's a banging text. So if I just like read it and then read it multiple times, that'll be all we need to do. But I'm going to start in verse 31. And then we're just going to continue to the end of the chapter. And then um, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in together. Um, so these are the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, written to the Roman church. Romans 8, verse 31. What, uh, then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are facing death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. But in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, what good news Uh, that no matter what we are facing in this moment, the things that we have carried into this room the things that are waiting for us on the other side of the door or tomorrow morning, that the unstoppable, relentless power of your love to to reach us regardless of what could be coming our way, Lord, what good news. It's unstoppable. It's unconquerable. And so, Lord, I just pray that today we would let it wash over us and that we would find ourselves feeling um, truly loved, fully, deeply as we are in this moment by your Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, who makes all of this possible for us. Amen. So we are in Lent, um, and if you're like me, you didn't grow up in a church that did the liturgical calendar, maybe Advent, but that was really just about a wreath and candles, and I didn't understand why we did that either. And so Lent was kind of new to me. I discovered it later in my adult life. 
um, as probably a bunch of you did. Um, and if you if you've been observing Lent, you know that like we're kind of we're about ten days in. Uh, last week, uh, Leon, Pastor Mac, uh, he goes by both, I assume. Uh, he uh, he talked about fasting and what fasting is an opportunity to do, and it's a chance to give up a legitimate thing. Um, I, one definition I heard years ago that I kind of always stuck is like fasting is when we give up something good for the sake of something better. And maybe this week you tried that. Fasting is is a it's foreign to a lot of people that didn't grow up in sort of more liturgical churches. But if you tried it, I hope it went well for you. I hope it was hard. I hope it was I hope it was a, an opportunity to experience God. I hope it was all the things. And if you were like me and you you didn't just crush your first week of Lenten fasting, I just want to let you know like that's okay too. You know, uh, forty days is not a magic number. These are disciplines that we can pick up at any point. And maybe, maybe you're new to this or you're, you're hesitant or even last week as, as Leanne mentioned, like there might be some, some story in your background. You're like, actually, I have a very weird relationship with food and it's hard for me to think about how to do this in a way that's going to be wise. And just wherever you're coming from, I just want you to know when we do this, when we put down little things, we will discover in the long run, it won't be immediate. We will discover in the long run there is something better than screens. There is something better than, than pizza and cake and beer. And there is something better than it. Um, but wherever you are, it's just the invitation of the Spirit in this season is for all of us to just take small steps in the direction of walking in the way of Jesus. And I think what this morning's text does is it gives us sort of the, per, the, the, the perspective that we would need in order to take those small steps of discipleship and discipline. And it does it by telling us essentially what the end of the story is. It's kind of weird that it would find itself here in week two of Lent. I don't totally understand what the lectionary thinkers were thinking, but I feel that way a lot when I come to the lectionary. But I do think that probably, maybe what the heart of it was, was, was this idea that like Lent is an invitation into the wilderness. It's an invitation into suffering. It's an invitation into, uh, into abstaining from things and saying no to ourselves. And what would enable you to do that? Why would you want to give things up? You know, life is hard. A lot of us are carrying heavy things. Why would you want to make your life harder? You know, why would you want to take away some of the small pleasures that get you through the day? Why say no to these things? And the reason is, is because it is, a, it is an opportunity or it's a window, it's a pathway in which we can finally experience the deep, profound, life-changing love of God that is available to all of us. And a lot of times we have to turn off the clutter. We have to, we have to, say, we have to suppress some of the, the, the internal noise in order to find our way um, to that love. And that's what this morning's text is about. It's just about how God feels about you. It's about what story you're living in. And it's about how we can understand all of suffering, all the hardship, all the heavy things, all the sadness, all the loss, all the grief. And we can put all of it, we can place it in the context of a story that has a very good ending. That no matter how dark this moment of the movie is, that the ending is exceptional. So, I can't possibly talk about this whole text in like 20 minutes. So I'm going to talk about one clause of it, and uh, we're just going to sit there. So first of all, though, let's, let's find our bearings. We start uh, with these words. What then shall we say in response to these things? And if you're, you know, you probably, if, if, unless you've memorized Romans 8, you probably are going, what things? You know, it's like, I love it when we just get dropped in the middle of a conversation. It's like when you wake up in class and the teacher's like, Matthew, what do you think about these things? You know, and you're like, they're good. Those things are good. 
you know, so what do we say in response to those things? Well, we have to ask, what are the things he's talking about? So, Romans 8, it is, in my estimation, for Pauline literature, it is, it is Everest. It is, it is as good as it gets. And the book of Romans is, uh, it is Beethoven's ninth. I mean, it, it is a masterpiece. And we are in the middle of a, of a letter, in the middle of a chapter. Now, of course, Paul didn't put, like, verses and, and chapters. He just wrote a letter. So we're in the middle of a huge letter. And the editors later went and broke things up by themes, which is why Romans 8 is about something slightly different from 7 and 9 and so on. And so we're in the middle of this chapter that's all kind of around this one big theme. And the theme of Romans 8 is that God is going to make all things new. He's going to restore, refresh, save, rescue everything. Nothing is outside of his, uh, of his reach. All things God can save and heal. He starts off by saying that now you and I uh, have the Spirit of God, and that enables us to do something that we couldn't do otherwise, which is to live on this earth as God's cooperative friends. We can now, as he would say, walk in step with the Spirit. That this isn't available to you and me, so we now are on the earth as people who can walk in step with, in partnership with God, so that wherever you are, God is there. So when you're in a classroom or sitting on the couch with your family or on an airplane on your way to a business trip or wherever you find yourself, God's in that space because the Spirit is, is with you in that space. And he wants to remind you, as we just sang, that there's no condemnation, therefore, for you and me, that we, we are free from this, from the law of sin and death, and we are now free in the Spirit to walk as God's cooperative friends. And then he said, isn't that good news? And then he says... And then he says that God is not just doing this renewing work in us, but he's doing it on everything on the earth. That if you had ears to hear like, uh, like Legolas, and you could, you know, the elf from the Lord of the Rings, and you could put your ear to the earth and hear the earth, you would hear it groaning in anticipation of the revelation of the children of God. When everything, every blade of grass, every bull moose and butterfly and peacock and poppy flower, every everything will be in a moment washed over with the beautiful, life-giving, reviving love of God, and all things will be made new. And the whole world is groaning for this. And so Paul then goes on to say, so when you consider these things, really all the suffering that you and I are bearing right now is, it's light and momentary. It doesn't feel light when you're in the moment. It doesn't feel momentary when you're in the moment either. But even just time allows us to go back and say, you know, those things that felt like they were crushing me at the time, it was momentary. It did pass. And Paul says, in the ultimate sense, it really is momentary. That all of these things are actually just, he says this in 2 Corinthians, but it's the same theology, they're just preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That these things, these hardships, these sufferings, these costs that we're bearing now are going to, in time, they will be seen for what they are which is that there are lessons that God is using. They're, they're, his, they're his, his tools. There's how, it's how he's making us perfect people. It's how he's making us into the kind of people that are fit for his kingdom. And then he says, and the Spirit now is at work with us and has given us a name, a cry in our heart that allows us to be connected to God in the most intimate and connective way. And the word that the Spirit gives to us is the word Abba. You probably know this word if you've been in church for a while. Abba is a shockingly intimate word that children would use for their fathers. And what, what Paul is saying is that, that you and I now, as people with the Spirit, living in this world that is aching and groaning for the revelation of, of all things to be made new, that in this moment we have a deep, intimate, connective 
life with God. That is able to look at God and see Him not as a, a grand, majestic being far away from us, but as a dear, intimate uh, Father that we that we crawl into bed when we have a nightmare next to. You know, like that's 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 Abba. That this is what the, the this is the word that the Spirit gives to our soul to cry out uh, to God with. And finally, He says, in light of all this, we know. That God is working all things together for good. Romans 8.28. Probably a verse that you have heard and have also heard misused. Because we treat Romans 8.28 like it's God's like, don't worry, I know you lost that job, but it's because I got a better one for you. And it's like sometimes he doesn't have a better one for you, right? Like sometimes it doesn't work, life doesn't always work out that way. Like I know your heart was broken there, but that's because there's another Romeo out there. Maybe there isn't another Romeo. Maybe that was it. Maybe actually you're not going to, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, well, that's because we're looking to temporal things, momentary things to be God's blessing. And they're not. God's blessing is far greater than whatever fleeting thing we could accomplish or achieve or find in this life. But it's not here all the way. Like, we get tastes of it. We get the scent of it. But we don't, we're not going to get, but it, but it is coming. God is going to make all things new. And therefore, Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's just like this climactic, triumphant, yes! Like, I can't lose. We can't lose. Because all of these things have clearly been shown. That God, this is the work he's up to. What is God doing in the world? He's doing this. What is the end of all things going to be? This. Do the things in this world matter? Absolutely. The suffering that's being represented in just this room, let alone in this neighborhood, let alone in this nation, let alone on the globe. Does this suffering matter? Yes. But God is going to make all things new. Martin Luther used to love to add, um, he works all things together for good, and then Luther would add, even our sins. That there is nothing wasted in God's economy. Isn't that beautiful? Every last part of your life, every last broken shard in this world will be picked up and dusted off and washed in blood and made new. And so, now that Paul says, so what do we say? God's for us. Nothing can be against us. And then he says, and this is the clause I want to really spend the next ten minutes on. Um, For he who did not spare his own son. How do we know that this is what God is doing? What's the evidence? Because if you look around, do you see it? I mean, you see it in little bits. Like, you see, like, moments of redemption. You're like, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. You know, And that's kind of what it means to be a Christian. You know, like you start to develop eyes that see the kingdom. Like, oh, that's what it looks like. You start to get a nose for it. But a lot of times we look around and we're like, where's the signs that this is all going in a good direction? That God is taking this to a, a triumphant end? Where's the, where's the evidence of it? And Paul says the evidence is that he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So I want to talk about what this means that God did not spare his own son. The tremendous truth of the gospel is that you and I are not only God's children in the general sense. Every person on earth is God's child. Everyone bears the image of God, whether they are black, white, brown, Democrat, Republican, queer, straight, whatever. All people on this earth bear the image of God and are God's children. 
But what the gospel tells us is that there's even more available because of now what Jesus has done. That Jesus has come and made it possible for you and me to not only experience the general sense of being God's child in the world, but being the particular, peculiar sense of God's adopted son and daughter. This is why the New Testament uses language again and again like inheritance. Like, who gets inheritances? Do strangers get inheritances? Maybe in weird movies. But just in general? No. Who gets it? The kids get it. The family gets it. That's who gets the inheritance. And what the gospel says is that you and I were outsiders. We were were born into a family, essentially, like the prodigal son. But we rebelled. We left. We moved across the country. We changed our name. We did everything we could to distance ourselves from God. This is sin. These are all the ways, all the, the, the systems that we put in place to try to be our own savior, to try to make life work apart from God. All of these things draw us further and further away from what we're meant to be, which is to simply be God's beloved child. But God, in his endless mercy, relentlessly and, 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 and patiently pursued and wooed and came after and invited and called and drew us back into ourselves. And we find ourselves, this is, you know, we come to our senses, we find ourselves back home where we were always meant to be. And this time we come back and we're, we're not like the prodigal son. We're not, we, we come back, we're like, oh, I can't believe, I'm such a mess. Just make me a servant. I know I'm not even fit to be your son. And, and God's like, are you kidding? Like your room's ready, you know? Like the space is prepped for you. We're going to have a big party. You are my son. You're my daughter. You're brought in. So you get all the blessings, all the merits, all the undeserved bonuses and gifts of being an adopted son of God because God did not spare his own son. You and I are beloved sons and daughters of God, and, and the enormous task of my life is just believing that. Just, just aligning myself with that as, a, as an idea that would shape my whole self. And the reason it's so hard to believe that is because there are so many other competing narratives in the world that you and I are living in that tells us who we are. So I'm, uh, I was born in 1980, uh, which, which means that I, I turned 44 this year. Um, what year were you born? You don't have to say it out loud. Well, be- between that year and your last year, which it, it could be decades down the road. It could be less than a decade down the road. We don't know. It's a mystery. Between those two points in our life, we are all of us from the time we're infants to the time we're old ladies and men lying in bed, we're asking a question. Who am I? Maybe by this point we're asking, who was I? But it's the same question. And the world is constantly giving us answers to that question. And they're not helpful, but we're listening to them anyway. This is what the world says. We say, who am I? And and the world says, oh, well, you are what you do. And not like I am a barista, you know, or like I'm a flight attendant, or I'm a pastor, but like I am, like my behavior, I am, if I'm doing good things, then I'm a good person. If I've done bad things, I'm a bad person. And so when I'm doing well, I feel really good about myself. And when I don't do well, I feel like crap about myself. I, I have a, an incredibly articulate inner critic who's very good at cutting me down to size. It's myself, unfortunately. But it's all in agreement with this idea that I am what I do. And if I'm not doing well, if I'm failing, I'm a failure. So that's one answer to the question. Second answer is I am what people say about me. I am who other people say I am. This is very dangerous. 
uh, especially in today's world, I think, because we are living in a time in which everyone can say everything they think about anyone all the time. So that's the world we're living in. How do we possibly blot out, block out all of these voices telling us who we are? Now, when I was a kid, like in high school, if someone said something mean about me, like it would take me a week to recover. Anyone else? Is that just me? Was I really fragile? So you, you were, but also me. Um, so now it's not so bad. Now if I find out something, like it might, it might eat up an afternoon. You know, I may not be as productive as I, but I'm getting better. And I think as we get older, we care less and less what people think about us. Um, thanks be to God. This is one of the things that time does. I don't think we earn that. I just think time does it for us. Thanks, thank Jesus. Um, but we still, many of us can find ourselves, I mean, at the mercy of people's opinions. And we find out that someone says something good about us and we, whoa, we feel really good about ourselves. Our self-esteem rises. We find out someone says something mean about us or someone look, someone just looks at us funny, you know, someone we respect. And we start to sink, like our self-image sinks. Because, because why? Because I am what people say I am. I am who people think I am, right? It's not true, but it's how we live. And then the third thing is I am what I have. And, and this is like anything that I have in, in my life. It's, it's, of course, it's possessions, but it's also like it's the talents I have. It's the job I have. It's the status I have. It's, it's, it's a citizenship to a country. It's, and if I ever start to feel like these things that I have are at risk, as long as I have them, everything's fine, right? But when they are threatened, when they suddenly feel like they're being taken from me, what happens? My sense of self begins to drop. Why? Because I believe that I am what I have. And if I lose this job, which gives me this identity, or um, whatever it is, suddenly I, I lose this sense of, like, of, of uh, solidity. Like, I am that vulnerable to people's opinions. I am that vulnerable to the things I do. And I'm that vulnerable to the things I have. Being, like, I can just change in a minute. And God is, through the Spirit... I mean, we, oh, I love the song we sang this morning. The, the first one is like, Jesus is earnestly, tenderly fighting against these ideas. Because when we live this way, what happens? Our lives are roller coasters and not a fun one. Like one when you're already nauseous and you have to go on it again because your kid dragged you on it for the fourth time. Like that kind of roller coaster. They're not fun lives because we live at the mercy of circumstances. We live at the mercy of externals. We live at the mercy of other people's opinions. Other broken people's opinions who are also basing their sense of self-worth on what they have and what they did and what other people said about them. And it's... Jesus is earnestly, tenderly, through the Spirit, pushing against these narratives because he wants you and me to be more solid than that. He wants you and me to be God's cooperative friends on the earth. He wants you and me to be people who can be extensions of his ministry now in your immediate context. And it's hard to do that when I'm so locked in my own head, when I'm spinning around a criticism of myself, when I'm fearful of failure because of what it will say about me. Jesus wants more for you and me than that. He wants you and me to know that we are truly, deeply, fully loved, even as we are. Brandon Manning is uh, an author, um, Roman Catholic. He a uh, beautiful man and struggled his whole life with alcoholism and, and publicly. And in the end, uh, succumbed to the addiction and, and drank himself to death. And also, in the midst of that lifelong struggle, wrote some of the most beautiful words about the unconditional love of God in the English language. 
And he writes in his book, Abba's Child, in his human journey, Jesus never experienced God in a, uh, in his human journey, Jesus experienced God in a way that no prophet of Israel had ever dreamed or dared. Jesus was indwelt by the Spirit of the Father and given a name for God that would scandalize both the theology and the public opinion of Israel, the name that escaped the mouth of the Nazarene carpenter, Abba. Jesus, the beloved Son, this is it, does not hoard this experience for himself, but he invites and calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. Do you honestly believe that God loves you? I know that we're in church, right? So we're like, yeah, yeah, totally. But are you letting it, are you letting it all the way in? Are you letting it answer the questions top to bottom? Are you letting it actually be the ground you're standing on and the sky over your head? And I'll just say, on a good day, maybe, on most days, when I'm tired, when I'm fatigued, when I'm nervous, when the cost of groceries keeps going up and the money is not going up, do I actually believe that all of these things are light and momentary because I am so profoundly, deeply, truly, perfectly, never-endingly loved by God. I think of it like oxygen a little bit. I don't know if this will be helpful to you. Oxygen is here. None of us are aware of it. If we were suddenly having an asthma attack, suddenly oxygen would become something we were very aware of. If someone was holding your head underwater, you need to get out of that relationship. And also, you would be aware in that moment (laughs) that oxygen is a thing you need. And I think God's love is like that. It's always here. Like, God's love is not, we don't have to, you don't have to ascend to heaven to get there. It's right here. But we're not aware of it. We're breathing it in. We're exhaling it. It's all around us. It's available to us. It's available to give to another person, and yet we find it hard to actually grasp with our hands. Henry Nouwen, another Roman Catholic, another author, um, amazing, amazing man, um, lived his whole life as a celibate uh, gay man and uh, fought for community and intimacy in the world that was constantly telling him that he was wrong and bad. Um, He wrote a book called Return of the Prodigal Son. It was required reading at my last church. So... He says, I claim my true identity as a child of God, but do I, I still live as though God, the God to whom I'm returning demands an explanation. But could I accept that I am worth looking for? That Jesus is earnestly, tenderly calling, sinner, come home. Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me? He who did not withhold his own son, but graciously gave him up, how will he not along with him give us all things in Christ Jesus? Do you know what it means that he gave up his own son? It does not simply mean, of course, this is what Lent is is leading us towards. It doesn't simply mean that Jesus came to earth. Of course, we know that. It means that God was willing to, in partnership, the Father with the Son with the Spirit, working together, was willing to allow the Son to go all the way to a brutal death. That this is what God was willing to do collectively, the Father sending the Son. And it says in in Philippians chapter 2, that, that Christ, although in the image of God, fully one with God, made himself nothing. He emptied himself 
and took on the form of a servant and became subject to death, even death on a cross. It says that he emptied himself. That when it says that God did not withhold his son, he's saying that he allowed his son to be fully drained of everything. Of all beauty, all glory, all life, all sweetness. Why? So that you could know how loved you are. So that you could experience the, the restoring life of God on the earth so that you, so that you could come home. That this is the evidence of how far God would go for us. That this table is the evidence of how God, how far God would go for us. That God would rather die than be without you. Uh, so, I came across this story a while ago, uh, or, or I, was, I was reading a sermon from years ago, and I came across a story, and I was like, oh man, I forgot about that, but it, um, it stuck with me, so I'm going to share it. So, my, I have four kids. <sighs> uh, the third one is, uh, is Rowan. He's 11 now. But this is Rowan when he is, uh, what is he, six months? He's six months in there. Rowan um, was not easily comforted as a child. He wouldn't take a pacifier. He wouldn't take a bottle. Um, he, uh, the only thing in the entire world that could stop Rowan from crying was, was my wife's presence. And thank be to God, she was great at it. Um, but he didn't even like me very much. Now, we found out uh, years later that Rowan was dealing with a, a lot of neurodivergency and some very, very difficult sensory disorders, which made so much sense. It was like one of those things where like, oh, like, and all the pieces snap into place. But at the time, I didn't understand this. Anyway, so one night, my wife is out. She never would go out. So I, I'm, I'm so happy she got out because she never would do that. But she's out for some reason, and I'm home, and the girls are already in bed. And Rowan is screaming, because that's what he did. He just screamed. I mean, he, he smiled too, so, but he screamed a lot. And I'm holding him, and I'm rocking him, and I'm doing everything. And I'm doing the football hold. I'm trying to get the gas out, you know. You just try everything. You're, like, literally just desperate. And um, so after about an hour of this, I'm like, well, this is such a dad thing to do. I was like, well, I might as well turn on the TV. <laughs> so I turn the TV on as I'm holding on to Rowan. And he's just screaming in my ear, right? His little face. And it was right around Easter week. And so the History Channel was um, just blasting the airwaves with all these Jesus documentaries, right? Because that's what the History Channel does. It's like, it's aliens or it's Jesus around Holy Week. That's the, kind of, that's a, that's the lane it's decided to carve out for itself. And um, so it's Passion Week. And this is the final night of this Jesus documentary. And it's about the passion. It's about the death of Jesus. And I'm sitting there. And this is just... It's just one of those things the Spirit does. I'm sitting there, I'm holding Rowan, scrunched little face, he's screaming in my ear. I'm watching this man on a cross crying out to his father. And I just thought how awful it must have been in that moment that the father couldn't comfort the son. You know? Like, when your kid is hurt, like, you'll do anything to soothe their suffering. Like, and, and yet God wanted you and me to know just how great his love was for us, that he was willing to say no to his son's cry, so he could say yes to yours. This is what the gospel invites us into, a wild love affair in which we finally find the love we've been looking for in so many broken places, including in broken people. The thing that we can never really manage to scrape together, no matter how accomplished, how successful, how wealthy, how whatever we are. 
It's waiting for us. It's waiting for us at home with our, with our Father, with our Abba. And so, Jesus, we just admit as we, in a minute, we'll confess sins and we'll come forward. We need, we need this to do more than just be a symbol to us. We need to come home to your love. We want to come home to your love. We want to stop frantically running around, living on roller coasters, basing ourselves in people's opinions, our success, whatever. We just want to believe that you, who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, will also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things. And so we don't need to worry. We do not need to be anxious. For our Heavenly Father knows what we need. So we do. We come home to your love, Father. We thank you. We thank you for giving us your Son so that we could be made yours. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Matthew.